Second Corinthians chapter 6 is a continuation of chapter 5, which has told us that we are ambassadors for Christ. And then verse 1 of chapter 6, working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And the transparency that uh, Paul is expecting is, has displayed for the Corinthians, expecting of them as well. And if we skipped over our passage that we read, if you look at verse 13 of chapter 6, in return I speak as a children, widen your hearts also, and go down to 7-2, make room in your hearts for us. Okay, so this is one passage, and I've wrestled this week, as you wrestle uh, with why is this passage here, it doesn't seem like it quite fits. It seems like it's out of place, like someone just put verse 14 to 7 one right in there, and we had to figure out uh, why it's there. The Holy Spirit of God puts it here uh, for us. And a truth that is wonderful, that is, sorry guys, I think I'm on now. All right. Uh, that is uh, wonderful, that um, makes the New Testament different than the Old, is God lives in us. He was promised to come live in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. And that was going to help the Israelites and God's people to obey him from the inside out. And when you and I uh, are dead in trespasses and sins, we need to be made alive on the inside. And when Christ um, sets us free from sin and death, and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, we are born again. And when we are born again, God the Holy Spirit lives in us, and because we are uh, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have a wonderful phrase in verse 16 that is the theme of this section of Scripture. We'll get to up to verse 16 today, and then we'll see how that plays out uh, next week uh, in verses 17 uh, and to 7-1. We are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God that has so many um, applications. That's so rich of a phrase that we could think about and meditate on and not get all of the truth out of it. But it is um, very helpful for us. And verse 14, where we're at today, if we are going to be ambassadors for Christ and working together with him and having God's grace flow through us, then what Paul's going to tell us here is a command that is negative. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We need reminders that our bodies are to represent our holy God. I took the other reminder off of there because this is all we'll get to today. Our bodies are to represent our holy God. Temples, physical temples, are temporary. There are temples that are in ruins now, and you can look them up on the internet. And the temple to Diana of the Ephesians uh, was the, a magnificent temple uh, in Paul's day. But that temple is not still standing. There are other temples that were used in ancient times, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, and all there are left is a few columns or a foundation, and that's it. Physical temples are temporary. These bodies that we have are temporary, but we are to use these bodies to represent our holy God. 
we have already seen this temple language twice in Paul's letters, 1 uh, uh, Corinthians 3, and then 1 Corinthians 6. Go with me back to 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6. This is how you remember where the temple language is and what's expected of us as our bodies are temples of the Holy God. They're both 6, and they're both in Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, and both of them are at the end of the chapters. All right, so 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And there's a lot of uh, commands in 1 Corinthians, but in the middle of 1 Corinthians is this temple, your body is the temple, and now back to 2 Corinthians, and he's going to give us more instruction based on our bodies being the temples, and we are ambassadors for Christ from chapter uh, 5, verse 20. So we're ambassadors for Christ, as you see up here on the screen, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is our mission as, uh, as people, rescued, reconciled to God. We are now on a mission as ambassadors for Christ to go out and tell the world, be reconciled to God too. And God wants to use these bodies to accomplish that goal. So the question that we have here from verses 14 to 16, there's five questions. And so my, um, my outline today are going to be questions. And the question that we have first is, do these partners make sense? When you look up pictures of a yoke, now we don't see oxen uh, in yokes today out in the fields. The, those have been replaced by tractors. Um, but in some cultures today, there are still uh, oxen, and uh, they must have been short on oxen in this picture, or there was a surplus of camels, or vice versa. And so, based on necessity, you go with what you have, right? And so, this is something that M M MacGyver probably would have done, too, uh, as we uh, putting two things together that don't really fit. You can see how the yoke isn't level. It goes up quite a bit. I don't know the strength of a camel, but I'm assuming the strength of a camel is different than the strength of a, of, of a cow there on the left, an oxen. I'm assuming that the gait, the, the way that the animal walks is going to be different. So that bar, the, the, thing that, the yoke that's holding them is going to be constantly moving. I'm assuming the camel longer legs is going to have longer strides. And it's going to be frustrating for all four characters in the picture here. The little guy in the front that's holding, it looks like he's holding the camel, maybe to keep it in line. <laughs> and the guy in the back's trying to, trying to plow a straight row. And then the, the cow and the camel together, I might be looking over like, how did I get stuck with him, right? So these partners don't make sense. And that's the picture that Paul starts with in verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked together. With unbelievers, I don't know how long that these guys are going to be yoked together, but if they're plowing all day, the, if you are frustrated with the person that you are connected to, the longer you're connected, the more frustrating it becomes. 
So Paul says, if we're ambassadors and we're to be uh, transparent and open and have Christian character uh, in the first part of chapter 6, he says, here's something that's going to hurt you for, from possibly opening up, from opening your hearts. And if you are considering being unequally yoked with unbelievers, you're not going to tell someone at the church because they're going to say, but doesn't 2 Corinthians six fourteen forbid this? Or if you do have, are unequally yoked together and disobeyed God in doing this, you're going to try to hide that. And so we'll, we'll talk at the end about how to, um, how to apply this. But let's get these five questions uh, from verses 14 to 16 and, and see what they mean. You'll see the uh, verses half of 16, 17, and 18 are all quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, many, many quotes from the Old Testament in, represented in those verses, and we'll look at those, Lord willing, uh, next week. So do these partners make sense? On the right side of your screen is, left side of your screen is white. Uh, the, the right side of the screen is, is uh, dark. So light and dark, and I got that from the second phrase, second question, of light and darkness. We live in God's light, and sin causes the world to be in darkness. So let's ask ourselves these questions, because Paul's asking the Corinthians these questions, and he's going for, to answer this, this big question. Do, do these partners, do this kind of partnership, does it make sense spiritually? Verse 14, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So why is he asking this? Let's look at the next phrase. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? In all of these questions, there is a representation of the Christian life in the first part of the phrase and a representation of the life without Christ in the second part of the phrase. And so we're meant to compare. So I have a chart up here. Pretty simple. All we're going to do is go through these questions one at a time. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, we saw in Sunday school a couple weeks ago that Romans 6 says that we are either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. And when we are slaves of sin, Christ sets us free. And when we're free from uh, being slaves to sin, we transfer our master from slaves of sin to a slave of Jesus or slave of righteousness. And what we get from being a slave to sin is what? death, what we get from being a slave to righteousness is eternal life. So we're not on the same team. And I have talked to people who maybe have a different religion and they think, oh, you guys are a Bible church and uh, it seems like we're all Christians and we're all on the same team. I don't know what percentage right now in our country claim to be Christians, but we have to take the Bible's language and if someone claims to be a Christian and they're not born again, they're not a follower of Jesus, they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, they could care less about, and we'll see the distinctions here, we can say you can take any label you want to in any survey you want to, but claiming something doesn't make it true. Life makes it true. 
or false. Reality is Christians are on the, described on the first phrase, first half of the phrase, and unbelievers, unsaved, those who are still following Satan are represented on the second uh, part of all these questions. For what partnership? What do partnership, those who have something in common, what partnership has righteousness with unrighteousness? So the Christian life is this. We strive to follow God's righteousness. Now, before you were saved, you didn't care about doing what was right. All you cared about was probably not getting in trouble and doing fun things against the law. Um, Halloween is one of those times a year where you, uh, I've heard um, people and stories that my dad, he was not a believer when he was a teenager. I'm like, Dad, you had the funnest time. You had the most fun as a uh, unsaved teenager. He was like, oh, no, I've got scars <laughs> from my from my lawlessness, and I was a terror of the neighborhood, and my parents got called whenever I and my brother and friends were in their yard and, um, and uh, wreaking havoc and, and vandalizing and things like that. So I'm not, I'm not a proud of that, and, and Romans 6 says that, what do you have from the things of which you are now ashamed? And when our lives were disobeying God's laws and God has rescued us and set us free, and made us born again. Now we're on the left side of this chart. And to be on the left side of the chart, our goal is different in life. We're not striving to get away with things and just trying not to get caught. We're striving to please God. We're striving to do what is right and what God says is right. And how do we know that? From the Word. So we look at God's laws differently. Someone who says, thou shalt not, or reads, thou shalt not lie. A Christian says, I don't want to lie because it displeases God. And an unsaved person says, eh, everybody lies. Just a little white lie, or just a few, or just, eh. And they just keep making excuses for lying. And if you're talking to someone who keeps making excuses for breaking God's law, I'm not sure you want to be a partner in life with them. We strive to follow God's righteousness. And so Paul says, don't be unequally yoked with other believers because there, it doesn't make sense to be connected, to be working together as a partner with someone who you wanting to do what's right and obey God's word and others who want to live a life of lawlessness. Second, or what fellowship has light with darkness. If you ever work now that we're getting less and less daylight, you have to use more and more artificial light uh, out in your yard, or it's still uh, warmer weather, you can work outside, but you run out of daylight and you have to use light. Light and darkness cannot be in the same place at the same time. As soon as you turn on a flashlight, darkness is gone. As soon as you turn off the flashlight, darkness is there. So there, there, light and dark do not mix. So what is it about the Christian life when it comes to God's light? Well, 1 John 1 says that we walk in the light as he is in the light. And there is no darkness at all in God. And darkness is parallel to sin. And light is compared to God's righteousness, which you see in the first question as well. We want to walk in God's light. Hold your hand here and go, go with me to a very famous passage, John 3. 
Jesus taught Nicodemus after John 3.16 about light and darkness when it comes to spiritually doing what pleases God or doing what pleases yourself. Obeying God or disobeying God. In John chapter 3, near the end of Jesus' um, dialogue with Nicodemus, in that night when he's telling him he must be born again, and he must uh, trust in Jesus who is standing before him, who is teaching him, for God so loved the world, verse 16, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. And a few chapters later, Jesus is going to say, I am the light of the world. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, that's God's light, and righteousness, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there it's very clear that we, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Crime goes up when it's dark outside. Why? Because you can get away with it easier. Temptation to sin gets stronger in physical darkness because we think in our flesh that we can get away with sin. But the true believers, true followers of Christ, those who have been reconciled to God, those who are ambassadors for Christ, they want to walk in God's light. I can't make you want to walk in God's light. God the Holy Spirit does that for you and in you. And when our young people, when our, uh, those that we're discipling, when we see a desire in them to want to do what's right and want to walk in God's light, we can be encouraged that they probably are born again, that they are ambassadors. And those who want to disobey God's laws and those who want to, uh, sin's darkness, let's say, I don't, I don't see God's light here. You don't want to do what is right. No matter how many good Christian people you have around you, you're still walking in sin's darkness. Third question. What accord, what do they have in common again? It's just synonyms here. What accord, what unity has Christ with Belial? Now this is a word that is obviously something opposite of Christ, someone opposite of Christ. We think it's Satan, and that word means worthlessness. So Christ is, a, is of perfect and extreme valueless worth. He is priceless. And Satan is worthless. That's the term here. What accord has Christ who is infinitely valuable with Satan who is causing us to live worthless lives? Look at someone's values. What are values? What do you see as valuable? What do believers, those who are following Christ, those who have been reconciled to God, what do we see as valuable? In this phrase, what is it that's valuable? 
that's opposite of worthless. It's Christ. Christ is valuable. He is the treasure. When you are born again, you get him. And we'll see that again in another phrase. We value Christ and his kingdom. And those who are walking in darkness and disobeying God's law, they value Satan. And any lies that he tells us, like we are in charge of our lives, or this is your body, do with it what you want. Those are all lies from Satan. And those who aren't set free from their sin believe Satan's lies and are part of his kingdom. And he is of the father, you are of your father, the devil, Jesus said in John 8, 44. And his kingdom is a kingdom of darkness and lying and deceit and destruction. So what accord? How can we work with people who we value Christ and his kingdom and they value self-esteem, they value selfishness, they value the independent person, they value Satan and his kingdom, and just live for this life. This is all there is. What you can see is all there is. And we as believers are going to have a really hard time when life and ministry with people that we can't work together because we're valuing something completely opposite. And that we're seeing here, after three phrases, these are opposites. They're going in opposite direction. Verse 15 continues. Number four, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This word portion is elsewhere translated inheritance. If you have a wealthy relative and you think that you're in their will and they pass away, you go with an expectation of the reading of the will of, I'm going to get something. I'm going to get a lot of something. And you're expecting a huge portion, a huge inheritance. And what is it here that, what portion, what inheritance does a believer share with an unbeliever? Portion in the Old Testament is used as something that was a daily portion, like the manna that was collected was someone's portion. And that was something that was satisfying, that was sufficient to meet their needs. So both of these ideas of satisfying, sufficient, and an inheritance are all kind of monetary uh, ways of looking at life, things that we need that are apportioned to us for our daily needs. And if you have an inheritance that's going to supply a lot of needs for a lot of years, uh, you have a lot of hope. So he's asking the question, what portion, what inheritance what daily sustenance does a believer share with an unbeliever? What's, how does a believer look at life and inheritance with satisfaction, with contentment, or dissatisfaction, or discontentment? And notice the, the phrase here, believer, unbeliever. Believer in what? Unbeliever in what? Context determines what believer and unbeliever means. We are already told not to be yoked with unbelievers. Okay, so back in chapter 5, we, everything is about Christ. Christ, be reconciled to Christ. This is Christ's kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ's kingdom. He's using all this language where Christ is the center of, of the text here. And now we have believers, or probably believers in 
Christ. Unbelievers are not believers, not trusting in Christ. So what do we believe as Christians that makes us very different, opposite of what the world believes? We believe Christ is our portion. He's our inheritance. Ephesians 1, uh, 15 and following says that. We believe Christ is the treasure. He is our portion. He is valuable in phrase number three. And here he is our portion. And a portion isn't just something for daily. If you have add the idea of inheritance, he's also the hope for the future. If you're struggling financially and you have a massive inheritance waiting for you, you're not that concerned right now because you know what? The day is coming. I'm going to get a massive amount of inheritance. And it, I'm, my life is not going to be stressful financially when that inheritance comes. What do we have as Christians to look forward to? Christ is our inheritance. We're going to worship at his feet forever and ever. And Psalm 16 says, in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Like, wow, that sounds like a really good life. And it is. And as believers, we're believing that that's our inheritance. And because of that, we live very different. We live opposite of unbelievers who aren't believing that Christ is satisfying. And they look down at us and say, Psh, why are you guys going to church so much? Why do you read your Bible so much? Why do you pray so much? Why do you give so much money? Why do you, all these things that we do as Christians because we're trying to follow God's righteousness and we're trying to walk in his light and we're trying to, value Christ and his kingdom. It's all about laying up treasure in heaven. And we're believing Christ is our portion. So, you know what? The world is unsatisfying. You can watch football, every, and I used to watch football a lot, all day Saturday and all day Sunday. You know what I found? Football is unsatisfying. You can get a billion dollars in your bank account and check your bank account multiple times a day. And you know what you'll find? I haven't, I haven't experienced this. <laughs> you know what you'll find? Money in the bank is unsatisfying. You can take the best vacation, spend a lot of time and a lot of money and have the best experiences in the world, like YouTube-worthy experiences. And you know what you'll find? Those experiences are unsatisfying. You can drive the nicest cars, live in the biggest houses, etc., etc. have the whole world voting for you. And you know what you'll find? You'll be unsatisfied. You know why? Because only Christ satisfies. He always has, and he always will. Don't believe Satan's lies. Christ's kingdom is priceless. He is valuable beyond your imagination. And when you and I trust that, our, our world here just really just pales in comparison to what we have waiting for us in heaven. And you can get discouraged with the news. You can get discouraged with how voting may turn out in 20-some days. But that does not change who's on the throne. That does not change who created this world and who's coming again to rescue us out of this world. It doesn't change at all. These partnerships don't make sense because we're we're on a different trajectory, a different way of looking at life, a different way of looking at Christ. And so why would we need to partner and 
do life with and strive in ministry with those who don't know Christ. And then we are the temple of the living God. This isn't to pat ourselves on the back because remember, God chose us. We didn't choose him. When we were dead in trespasses and sin, God made us alive. Good theology doesn't say, oh, wow, look at me, and I trusted Christ, and now I'm in God's family, and you're not, and I'm, I feel bad for you. No. What he's telling us here, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The time in the Old Testament where there was an idol temple, where they took, the, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, put it inside of their temple Dagon, and Dagon falls off, and they set their god back up, and the next day, I think tonight, Dagon falls off, and I think his head and his hands are severed. Like, God does not compete with other idols. There is one true and living God. Every other thing, every other God is fantasy. It's not real. Look at 1 Kings uh, 19, 18 and see the exposure of Baal worship and the true and living God. It wasn't even a fair fight. Eight hours of um, lunacy, insanity of the Baal worshipers, 850 of them. And Elijah prays, after eight hours, the people are like, come on, these guys are idiots. They're cutting themselves? They're on top of their altar, and if Baal did answer with fire, they would be singed or burnt to death. Doesn't make any sense. And Elijah builds an altar, and in eight seconds, fire comes down and, and burns up the water and stones. Fire doesn't burn water and stones. God's fire does. You know why? Because he wanted all the Israelites to fall on their faces, which they did, and to say, God is the true and living God. Now we as believers in Jesus Christ as our king, he is our portion, he's satisfying us. He wants to use these physical bodies to indwell us with his spirit and then to use us as ambassadors in chapter 5. So these bodies are the temple of the living God. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? If we try to put idols into our heart and try to worship those idols, the living God's going to say, no, I do not cohabit with idolatry. Get the idolatry out. Throughout all the Old Testament, the Israelites, if they wanted to worship God, they had to get rid of idols, get rid of idols, get rid of idols. There is no comparison, the temple of the living God, with idolatry. And there's a lot of churches today, some big churches, and all it is is idolatry. There's feel-good messages, very little word of the word of God, no gospel, no sin, no redemption, no holiness, no fear of God. It's a show. It's entertainment. And that's what the thousands want. But that's not what is true and honest and just and holy. Our bodies are to be holy. We are the temple of the living God. We'll see next week uh, that. But so what, how does God in you affect the way you live? I put it up.
12 here together. No unequal yokes with unbelievers should affect who you date and who you marry. Now, if you're already married to an unbeliever and you were saved after your, after your wedding, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 speaks to that, that if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, then you do. And uh, you have, they have a front row seat to the glory of God. And they're married to an ambassador. And so uh, that's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. But it also says, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if your spouse dies, you're only free to marry someone who is also in the Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. Now, this is 2 Corinthians 6. And if you can't marry and you shouldn't marry an unbeliever, then you shouldn't even be dating an unbeliever. Okay, so parenting advice. Uh, if you are considering, and we have got, uh, we started as a church years ago uh, through the discipline process where someone who is a believer wanted to marry someone who is clearly an unbeliever. And I met with the unbeliever, shared the whole plan of salvation. They were not interested. They did not want, and it's not like I, did, I didn't want them to be happy. So we can't allow this because of all five of those questions, there is no, it's like not just unequally yoked, you're going in the opposite direction. If you put one animal going one direction, the other animal going the other, you know what they're going to get? They're going to get circles. They're only going to go in circles. They're not going to go anywhere. And so dating and marriage is an issue that uh, you are going to, it's going to affect everything of your life. Um, how you parent, uh, and everything, how you spend money, and you can go back through the, the questions, and it, it, they do match with you shouldn't date or marry an unbeliever, or someone who is obviously a believer. This is what I'm going to tell my kids. You marry someone who is obviously wanting to walk in God's light, someone who is obviously wanting God's righteousness, someone who is obviously treasuring and loving Jesus Christ and promoting his kingdom. That's who you want to marry. Not someone that you're dragging with you through life. Hey, let's go to church. No, I don't feel like it. Uh, let, let's give to church. No, we, we could go on a bigger vacation if we don't. And it's just one thing after another that you're going to struggle if you're married to someone who is not obviously a believer. Second, no unequal yoke should affect with whom you minister and worship. I was uh, invited a couple years ago to a college ministry and they said in our town here in Lowell they invited me to come and do a prayer walk I said that's fine I would love to walk around uh, the college campuses here in Lowell and pray for God's kingdom to be built and people would be saved I said so who else is invited to this and the list of um, churches and ministers ministers were people that I'm not sure they were believers. So I said, no, thank you. I can't walk around with unsaved people praying because the unsaved people can't pray. And what I should be praying for is an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I'm really going to confuse them if I'm there with them as a interfaith sort of, <laughs> sort of prayer walk. Uh, I'm going to be evangelizing the leaders of the other churches or ministries that I'm walking with. So I said, I, I can't do that. So no unequal yoke should affect with whom you minister and worship. And if you have to compromise the gospel and you can't be an ambassador for Christ, that, and you have to sign a statement or whatever, and uh, we have, as a church, had to 
not help a certain ministry, even though they were doing pregnancy care center work. Uh, we couldn't do it because we had to sign a Catholic statement of faith. And I said, we can't do that uh, because we're not, we're not Catholic. And uh, we don't um, go back to the last slide. And that's where we were at. So we couldn't do that. Uh, letter C. No unequal yoke should affect how you are daily satisfied with Christ. You and I have to constantly challenge our own hearts. Am I being satisfied with the world or satisfied with Christ? Is the world is going to be so tempting, and now we have access to all kinds, all kinds of entertainment. Whatever you like, you can find it on YouTube, I guarantee you. And you can watch hours and hours and hours a week that will distract you from Christ. It's not going to satisfy you like Christ will. And then fourth, no unequal yoke should affect how we hope for our inheritance in Christ. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the next. We're not laying up treasure on earth. Oh, no, because moth and rust corrupts and thieves can break through and steal that treasure. We're laying up treasure in heaven, which means we're focused on things that are eternal. God, people, God's word. That's it. God, people, and God's word. Focus on laying up treasure. Value those things. Spend a lot of time and effort and praying and meditating on how am I going to reach people? How am I going to get to know God better? Because your uh, future is extremely bright. It's actually perfectly bright because it's based on a perfect Savior. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to uh, worship the Lord with our communion. Our Father, thank you that uh, you have challenged us with your word to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers in close relationships and in, um, in worship. I pray that you would give us discernment, give us a love for those that are lost and help us to be ambassadors to them, but help us to be discerning as well. Thank you for this passage that helps us with our discernment helps us to think clearly about what is important and what we value and what the world values. And I pray that these bodies that you have given us as a gift, that we be good stewards of them and that our hearts and our minds, our lives would show a love for the Lord our God and a love for our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to use these bodies as holy temples for you. And thank you for your Holy Spirit living inside of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.